Thank you very much, Richard, for that. Do keep that passage open. An old hymn, which we can see part of on the screen, called Come Holy Ghost, Creator Come, that often, when I was a child, used to be sung at confirmations, describes the Holy Spirit in some of the ways that we can see in those two verses. By saying, Creator Come, it's recognising the Spirit's role in creation and affirming that he's not just this ethereal force, he's a personhood and he has personhood in the Holy Trinity of God. It calls him in this traditional version of the lyrics, the paraclete, which has various meanings, including um, legal advocacy. We remember as well how Jesus uh, pleads for us before the Father. But it means primarily, above that, one who comforts, comes alongside us. The other comforter that Jesus promised that he would send to us after his ascension. The aspect of God that remains always with us today. The Spirit anoints us, teaches us to understand God, shows us what's right, gives us strength. Jesus, before departing, has breathed the Spirit into his followers, but he's commanded them to wait here in Jerusalem for this full manifestation. And as in our passage, this manifestation begins to be unleashed in all its wonder and its glory, we see all these aspects of the Spirit at work. They worked to birth the church then, and they work in the church and in our lives now. And so the disciples are gathered in this upper room in one accord. We're told that very deliberately by Luke, because being in one accord in God's purposes is important, isn't it? We know that Jesus promised to respond to unity to those who gather in his name. And so for these apostles, their days of one-upmanship, bickering, jostling for position, failing to grasp anything, the days of Jesus probably being tempted every week to bang their heads together, it's behind them. They've seen their master risen, they know that they can rest in that. And so they're waiting. And then when it comes, it's mind-blowing, isn't it? Luke describes it for us as being like wind and like fire. Fire and wind are powerful natural forces, aren't they? Both can be used for man's good and man's pleasure, but as much as we're the stewards of them and we have the use of them, they're not tame. And they can at times be awe-inspiring and terrifying and destructive. When God at Sinai appears in fire and smoke to give the law, it's awe-inspiring and terrifying, and the people have to keep their distance. The Israelites in Deuteronomy are warned that God is a consuming fire who tolerates no rivals. And there are many instances too, aren't there, of God speaking out of mighty winds or of using them to bring judgment or chaos. Fire and wind then are so often powerful signifiers of the presence of God. And these are figures of speech then that contemporary Jewish readers and hearers 
would have felt an affinity with. In contrast, perhaps, though, then, to the fire and smoke and dread which accompanied that giving of the law on Sinai, these metaphors here represent for us the much more benign aspect of fire and wind. God is still not to be messed with, even under new covenant grace, and various people in the book of Acts will discover that fact, including um, most, especially perhaps Ananias and Sapphira, who I believe we're going to be hearing about this evening. But this is God's empowering, the beginning of his church, the beginning of his spirit indwelling all Christian believers. And the confidence that it gives to the disciples causes them to rush out into the streets and begin to proclaim the gospel for all that they are worth. They know that it's the truth and now the power to proclaim it in its fullness is given to them. Ephesians tells us that having believed, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. That the Spirit guarantees the promise of redemption until its final fulfillment in eternity. See, the Christian hope that we have, it's more than just a vague hope that it might not rain tomorrow, which in England is something we're always hoping for, or that our bus might arrive on time. It's a certain truth. And it's the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, the comforter in us that like a deposit on an inheritance gives us confidence in that promise. And it's that confidence that helps us to have the peace of knowing that this life with all its ups and downs is ultimately and eternally not all that there is. And like the apostles then, to speak that message with confidence. And so, an important aspect of maintaining the comforter, the Spirit's presence within us is this. How do we stay in touch with an instructor, a teacher, a friend? You have to speak to them, don't you? And you have to Listen to them. God touches us through prayer, through his word. We speak and we listen. How do you gain physical energy? There are factors here, aren't there, including rest and exercise, but a big part's proper food, nutrition. Nutrition's a big science these days. In the same way, we have to feed spiritually, don't we? Jesus gives us many pictures to show how we need to stay connected with him, such as a vine. If we're not connected to the life of the vine, we're just a dead branch. So without a strong devotional life then, we might think of ourselves as being like a battery that's run down and has to connect to God to recharge. As someone said in the first service this morning, the Spirit's in us but we're leaky vessels. A few weeks ago, I, I uh, braved myself to run the Norwich Half Marathon, 13 and a half miles, starting and finishing in the Norfolk showground and, and going around some of the surrounding area. I'd run for most of it at varying speeds to kind of try and pace myself for a run that was over two hours. 
And at the end of it, seeing the finish line was one of the biggest, most immense feelings of relief that I'd ever felt in my life. And gaining new strength with the finish line in my sights, I put my head down and I charged for it to finish this thing. So relieved that I'd actually done it. Um, When the Spirit of God seals us, it helps us to keep the end of the lifelong race of faith that Paul tells us to run, eternal life in our sights. The half marathon wasn't easy, but it's something that I enjoyed achieving. But by the end of it, I definitely needed some recharging, and I've never been more grateful in my life for sleep and a hot bath and the sugary food from the goodie bag. But life does this to our spirits too, doesn't it? It runs us down, and we have to be connected with God to refresh us and recharge us. Later in this chapter, Peter is going to speak to the crowd using powerful words about how the Spirit being poured out on all of us, indwelling in all of us, was prophesied in the Old Testament by Joel. No longer is access to God only for a chosen few or for a priest on certain days of the year, but as Christ died on the cross for our sin, the curtain of the temple separating the Holy of Holies is torn apart because now access to God is for all of us. And that's you and me, anytime, anywhere. In ancient Greece, people would travel for thousands of miles, days, weeks and months to get wisdom from the Delphic Oracle. In reality, this consisted of a priestess who would gabble a cryptic message which someone else would interpret. But the person waiting patiently for advice after their long epic journey might have to wait for a while. And this was because spies were hastily being sent out to gather the information. Not only this, but later archaeology revealed that um, a natural fissure under where the priestess would sit was releasing ethylene gas, putting her into a trance. And so, picture this. You've travelled for ages to get divine wisdom from the oracle. And what you get is some hastily cobbled together spy report and the ramblings of a witch who's stoned out of her head on gas. The book of Hebrews, by contrast, tells us this. Come boldly before the throne of grace, find mercy and help in times of need. Thankfully, no ethylene gas required. Don't try that, it won't end well. And thus we know that the Comforter is with us and that we're sealed for eternity. Romans 8.26 also promises that the Holy Spirit helps us pray, praying with us and for us. This is God partnering with us, rather than just leaving it to try and do this on our own. In even my half-awake morning efforts before work, he's with me. And that's the great privilege of prayer that God is partnering with you. Will we use this and cherish it? 
That choice, of course, is ours. And so the apostles pour out into the streets and begin to speak in other tongues, that is, other languages. Elsewhere in the New Testament, we see Paul talk about tongues of angels, and speaking in tongues can be a bit of a contentious subject in the church today, perhaps, as to whether it's still present and whether you've got the Holy Spirit without it. And whilst personally I might say that speaking in tongues in the charismatic sense isn't just a thing of the past, what's more important is the outflow of the Spirit in our lives. And the outflow, as we see it here, is extremely dramatic, isn't it? These speakers of many languages, all of them noted with historical precision by Luke, gathered here, astounded at being spoken to in their own tongues by, of all people, Galileans. Galileans so often viewed as these thick, uneducated, bumpkin cousins of the Judeans, turning the world upside down in a moment. And this cutting across language barriers, it's more than just God's power at work, isn't it? It's an aspect of redemption too. We may remember in the book of Genesis how at the Tower of Babel, God confounds and divides human languages to stop sinful man bent on wickedness, being too powerful, to stop him trying to build a tower to ascend to heaven in his own strength as if we ever could. But here, as a sign gift to birth the church, that division is, for a moment, overcome. As the Spirit of God cuts across these language barriers with the message of salvation. And while, of course, obviously, they're all a bit stunned by this amazing happening, some dismiss it as drunkenness. Peter, in the second part of this chapter, will go on, won't he? Um, We may remember to protest that, look, we're not drunk, it's only nine in the morning. Walking to church this morning, I passed my local Weatherspoons who start serving alcohol at 9am, which clearly isn't too early for some people, but however. But others are realising that what they're being told about, each in their own language, is the wonderful works of God. And they'll go on to ask, what must I do to be saved? And thus, it's so fitting, isn't it, that all of this is taking place at Pentecost the festival of harvest. Because it's now that the greatest harvest of all, the harvest of souls into God's church, begins. In John's Gospel, Jesus tells us that the Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin and of righteousness. Again, There's partly a legal sense to this, that this world's attempt to say what is right and moral without God will be proved in the end, finally and stupidly wrong. But it's also the Spirit helping us through our relationship with God and his word to be convicted of sin and to know when we need to repent. Can I, in the light of this then, issue this morning two invitations. 
two classes of people heard the same message. One shrugged it off. It's nonsense, drunkenness. But the other class of people recognized that God was in all that was going on and that his works were visible. In the end, those are the only two classes of people that there are. And so if you're not yet a convinced Christian, you can't yet say that Jesus is your Lord and Savior, which will you be? Are you shrugging all of this off? Outmoded superstition? Or are you allowing God's Spirit to nudge you, thinking, maybe there is something behind this that I need to respond to? Would you even perhaps today think about getting someone to pray with you, coming to a Discover course, take a gospel away with you to explore further with our blessing? And secondly, if we are Christians here, and I think most of us are, do we need the Spirit to reconvince us? Has it convinced and convicted those hearers on Pentecost Day? During a tour of a large manufacturing plant, a visitor noticed a man using a a fiery torch of high intensity to work on huge slabs of steel. Operating from a blueprint on a nearby table, a pointer traced the pattern and then, by a system of levers, enlarged the design as it was burned into the metal. There were times, however, when the flame would not make any impression. When that happened, a chemical substance was applied to the resisting patch and immediately the cutting could be resumed. The worker explained that although the torch was able to cut through steel eight inches thick, if it encountered the slightest film of rust on the surface, the flame wouldn't penetrate it. And the visitor, who was a Bible believer, remarked that it struck me forcefully that this is a picture of the Christian. The Holy Spirit is seeking to reproduce in us God's perfect design, marred by the fall of man, regeneration begun by, God's, uh, by Christ's victory on the cross, sanctification commencing with the work of the Spirit. If the life is unblemished, he's able to continue his efforts. But if we become carnal or backslidden, his work of shaping us is hindered until the area in question has been thoroughly cleansed. Now, in one sense, this illustration might seem to be making a fairly tall order of us because we know, don't we, that this side of eternity, we're never unblemished. But on the other hand, it is a picture of the work that the Spirit in us wants to do. And so repentance is an ongoing thing when we know that we need to, when we know that the Spirit of God in us is prompting us. Being sorry enough to strive to turn away from besetting sins, habits and mindsets matters here, doesn't it? We also need to be strong in our knowledge of God's Word so that it too can shape our characters and our mindsets. A late theologian called Harry Blemiers wrote a book called The Christian Mind, an interesting book, in which he argued that even among Christian believers, 
um, biblical mindsets and ways of seeing the world shaped by God's word had given way, even in the church of God, to secular mindsets and secular moral standards. See, if people don't know how to think biblically through knowledge of the word of God and a prayer, they're not going to live biblically, nor see the world biblically, and therefore not understand sin or salvation or the need for others to come to this saving knowledge. And we can also fall into the trap, can't we, of resenting God's moral truth. Will we therefore allow the Spirit in us to reconvince and reconvict us and pray for God's help and strength, remembering that the Spirit partners with us in acting on those convictions. And so in conclusion then, the church that's being birthed in all of this is a church that's secure in its faith, sealed and empowered in it, confidently broadcasting the message of redemption to all these people and then to the world and winning those who will recognise that they need its truth. It's a church that's built on repentance, redemption and confidence. And so that precious gift of God, the spirit of Pentecost, also seals us today with the confidence of redemption, helps us to walk in Christ, to seek God, to know God's presence, to understand truth and righteousness, and to walk in them too. We could say much more, couldn't we, about the fruits of the Spirit that it talks about elsewhere, and all that these should breed and outflow in us, but that's probably another message. But being people who stay filled with the Spirit means striving to deal with sin when God prompts us through prayer, through his word, and staying in communion with him. We sing a song, don't we, and as I began by referring to one hymn, I'm going to finish with reference to another one. Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Because we know, don't we, that a church that doesn't have the Spirit of God in it is nothing. Would we, even more so then, be people who would be able to sing that song about our hearts, our minds, our inmost beings also?